This is Sports Jam. I'm Doug Doyle, and my guest is Clayton Truder, a historian of American cities and the author of the new book, Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta, and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. Clayton, thanks for joining us on Sports Jam. Doug, thanks for having me on. Great to have you on. Enjoyed reading your book from the University of Nebraska Press, because I love history, and boy, you really delve into the history of these professional sports franchises. You have done your homework. This is a passion for you to look at franchises and the connection of sports. And I understand it's kind of started back in grad school, right? Yes. Yeah, it started as my dissertation. Initially, I wanted to write about the impact of professional sports franchise relocations on cities across North America. My advisor said that's a good idea, but it will take you 50 years pick a particular city that is emblematic of the shifts you want to discuss and tease out the details of that story and analyze it. So I picked Atlanta. Atlanta, in many ways, tells the story as well as anywhere. It's the first city to make a concerted civic effort with both its political and corporate leadership to lure pro sports to town by making public offerings, uh, public investments in pro sports, as well as rolling out the carpet for the big leagues in the same way they would have for a a Ford plant or a branch uh, of a large corporation. In 2022, when we think of Loserville, I asked my sports broadcasting students, what city would you pick? And most of them jumped on Detroit right away. And I said, well, this book that is out from Clayton Truder talks about the past a little bit. And Loserville referred to a July 1975 Atlanta Constitution two-part series that the series was entitled Loserville USA. And it indeed was about Atlanta. Because at the time, in the mid-60s, Atlanta had no sports teams. And then eventually, in a seven-year period, as you document in your book, they had four professional franchises. So this really was a great way to look at the relocation of franchises with the Milwaukee Braves moving to Atlanta. And then the Atlanta Falcons actually uh, finding a home there. The Atlanta Flames, uh, you know, I've heard you in, in other interviews talk about how surprised you were that they did so well uh, when it came to, you know, actually drawing attendance early on. And then, of course, the Atlanta Hawks. So obviously there was a, a riches to be found in Atlanta. As you wrote this book, you pay particular attention to the owners, the politics, and how it all works out. Your number one message to me seems that these franchises didn't do well in Atlanta because of inexperienced leadership or business owners that really had no idea what they were doing. Yeah, I think people underestimated the extent to which specific knowledge was required to succeed in sports. Just because you ran a successful manufacturing firm or were great at selling insurance or running a bank didn't mean you knew how to run a football team. And that certainly showed showed in Atlanta in its early years. You had a novice bunch of owners or absentee owners for all of their teams, and they often relied on their close associates rather than experts in their sports to succeed. I think that is one of the big lessons from the book. Atlanta's teams have done much better in recent decades because the owners have turned it over to people who are experts in their field, just like they would with any other business. Um, Looking back, there may be a tendency to be a little tough on them because there really hadn't been a generation of expansion owners before. There wasn't really much previous experience to look at because many of the owners of Major League Baseball teams, pro football teams, that was their primary family business. That was how they had earned money for a very long time. 
suddenly you have a lot of wealthy people who are buying into the big leagues and trying to compete against the established knowledge in the more established franchises. The Falcons have fallen on hard times after being in the division race earlier in the season. And as the teams made ready, coaches Van Brocklin and Fears got together to chew the fat. Like one of the beauties of this book is the timeliness of it. Even though it talks about Atlanta and starting these sports franchises, the book is extremely relevant to today, since many cities are still pursuing professional sports franchises. And in hockey, we had the Seattle Kraken this year finally break in after a really good run by the, you know, the Las Vegas Golden Knights and starting their franchises. You've come out with a book that I'm sure a lot of people want to read because I'm sure these cities could use this as a guide on what went wrong. Thank you. Uh, and, and, I, and I hope that's the case. In many ways, Atlanta invents the business model that so many other cities adopt, oftentimes quite explicitly. When Tampa went out and sought out pro sports in the 1970s and 80s, they said, we're going to do what Atlanta did, but we're going to do it smarter. Jacksonville very explicitly said so. New Orleans, just a year or two after Atlanta started getting Pro sports was doing this, doing this themselves as well. So many other cities have found if you make these investments, you'll draw the attention of the big leagues. And inadvertently, it created an arms race among cities that more established major league markets had to end up building their own stadiums to compete with all of these new communities who were willing to join the big leagues. Suddenly, after World War II, you have a rapid expansion of the number of cities that have the discretionary income to look to have pro sports teams that have enough citizens to have pro sports teams as transportation improves with with highways and jets across the country it makes it much more feasible for the big leagues to expand it required cities being willing to put themselves out there saying we're open for business to make this happen and atlanta really starts this process for better or worse another interesting aspect of atlanta sports is two of the most iconic sports figures ever were playing in atlanta during that time Hank Aaron, Henry Aaron for the Atlanta Braves, and Pistol Pete Maravich for the Atlanta Hawks. 68 for Maravich, and a steal. Look at him fight for this ball. The Pistols doing it all. A great ball game. You can't get any bigger names than that. And despite that, these teams did not necessarily do well. In fact, you document how during Hank Aaron's pursuit of Babe Ruth's home run record, the attendance was extremely poor, where he was receiving all kinds of adoration in other stadiums. Atlanta fans didn't come out. Uh, yeah, on two occasions, Atlanta was the best drawing road team in the National League. They went to St. Louis, they went to Cincinnati, they went to New York, they went to Los Angeles. Full houses gave Hank Aaron a standing ovation every time he came to bat. He'd come back to Atlanta and play in front of a few thousand people. Pete Maravich actually faced the same thing in the NBA in relatively the same time period. People around the country who had heard about Pistol Pete playing at LSU finally got to see him in arenas in New York and L.A. and Chicago and everywhere else. In Atlanta, they were just drawing three, 4,000 people a game uh, frequently, in, in spite of playing in, in both instances, playing in basically brand new stadiums that were state of the art at the time. So it, it, in many ways, it's very confusing what happened. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for it. I mean, in part, it's because you have a lot of transplants from other parts of the country who didn't feel any particular loyalty to Atlanta's teams themselves. If they were sports fans, they were they retained loyalties to the uh, to the to the cities from where they came. Um, you have you certainly have the issue of it being such a spread out and suburban place. 
Um, Atlantans, it was figured on a couple of occasions during the early 2000s, drove more than anybody else on the planet on average with their commutes. So coming back into the city for games was often a chore for people. There were plenty of people in the, in the region who could simply not afford to attend games. And uh, locals certainly had existing sporting passions before the big leagues got to town. There were many a nights when there'd be 10 or 12 different high school football games in Fulton County that drew 10,000 people while the Braves had barely four figures worth of people in the stands. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Henry Aaron is coming around third. His teammates are at home plate. And listen to this crowd. This sellout crowd is cheering. Henry Aaron, the home run king of all time. 7-15. Since we are talking about uh, Hank Aaron, you have a passage in there that I'd like you to read for us when it comes to the feeling of some of these players moving from Milwaukee to Atlanta, Hank Aaron had some comments to make. And of course it was in the news again, when the all-star game came out about the, you know, the shift from Atlanta. So once again, this book is extremely, you know, timely. So if you would uh, indulge us by reading a a little section there for us. My pleasure. Two of the Braves African-American players expressed a great deal of apprehension about the team's relocation to the South. Alabama natives Lee May and Hank Aaron made statements about the possibility of playing in the South that received extensive media coverage. I hope and pray we don't go, May told reporters in October 1964 after the Braves owners voted to relocate the franchise. I am positive we will face discrimination, and I have no intention of moving my wife down to Atlanta. May never had to make the move from Milwaukee to Atlanta. The Braves traded him in early 1965 to Houston, a far less progressive southern city than Atlanta, in exchange for infielder Jim Beauchamp and veteran starting pitcher Ken Johnson. It is unclear whether the trade was motivated in part by May's statements the previous fall. The media portrayed May as a locker room malcontent who came into personal conflict with a number of other players, including Aaron. While a player of Lee May's caliber could be dealt for comparable talent, Atlanta and the Braves regarded it as imperative that a player of Aaron's ability and stature embrace the move, both as a matter of public relations and ensuring the the team's on-the-field stability. I lived in the South, and I don't want to live there again, Aaron told a reporter after the announcement. He never said he would refuse to play in Atlanta. Instead, he emphasized how well he had been treated in Milwaukee. We can go anywhere in Milwaukee, he said. I don't know what would happen in Atlanta. Mm. Words from Hank Aaron uh, in your book. And one of the reasons I, I wanted to have you read that, that section was the CEO and president of WBGO, my boss, Lee May, is his uncle. So, wow. Yeah. So he was thrilled to know that uh, in this book, Loserville, uh, you do mention Lee May, who went on to, to have great years with the Cincinnati Reds and was really, as you mentioned in that book there, was a very, very good baseball player. So, and a fine musician, too. True, true. And, you know, when it, when it comes to the racism aspect uh, in Atlanta and those players not wanting, how do you see that working out with how these franchises evolved as well? 
Well, I would say Atlanta itself was unquestionably the most progressive city in the South in the mid-1960s. It had had a biracial political governing coalition from the late 1940s onward, which combined almost the entirety of the Black electorate, which was much larger than the Black electorate in much of the rest of the South. The uh, Atlanta Negro Voters League had gotten tens and thousands of people registered, and they worked together with Atlanta's professional and business classes to have a business-friendly and I would call it I would call it racially moderate in context. It was a fairly slow uh, desegregation pro- process, which took place in the 40s, 50s and 60s in Atlanta. Um, so relative to Birmingham or New Orleans or Chattanooga or, or anywhere else, Atlanta was very progressive. That being said, it's located in the state of Georgia, which was one of the most segregated states within the even even within the context of the South, one of the most segregated. In 1966, they they elect an explicitly segregationist governor in Lester Maddox, which was a tremendous step back from Carl Sanders, who in 1962 had been one of the more progressive Southern governors within the era of massive resistance. So even if Atlanta itself, at least in sections, was was more progressive uh, than much of of the rest of the region, it was firmly situated within the Jim Crow South at the time of its arrival. You know, this book took a lot of research, and I know that uh, you know you have really delved into the the different aspects of politics and social justice and things that are going on. And the New York Times, Dave Anderson at the time during Aaron's pursuit of Babe Ruth's home run record said, "Atlanta doesn't deserve Henry Aaron's drama. He'd be better off on a barnstorming tour." That's in your book. How long did it take you to to get all these facts and figures together? This is a decade-long process from the time I got the idea for my dissertation until the time it was published. It took took a number of years of simply looking through newspapers, looking through the Atlanta Constitution, looking through the Atlanta Journal, looking through the Atlanta Daily World, which is the the longest-running Black-owned newspaper in the country. I I did many interviews. Uh, I did, I think, roughly 40 or 50 interviews for the book. I looked through many archives uh, across the uh, across Georgia uh, for the book, as well as other archives in the uh, across the Northeast as well. So it took many years of research. It took several years to write. And finally, it's here, though. And hopefully it tells a as comprehensive of a story as at least I'm capable of telling about this time and place. It really does. And you hold a doctorate in U.S. history from Boston College and uh, you teach at Norwich University in Northfield, Vermont. This passion for history and uh, sports, where did that start for you? Well, they both started as a little kid. I mean, I I had a grandma who in her hometown ran the town's museum. And I think from that time onward, from age four or five, when I became aware of it, I was interested in history Um, for family vacations. I mean, I I had a grandfather who was buried at Arlington and we would just drive and we'd stop at Bat, we'd stop at Gettysburg, we'd stop at Fredericksburg. So I was interested in the Civil War was probably the first thing I was really interested in historically. I later on became a sports fan. And really from just from really as early as I can remember, I've been interested in sports and history. It wasn't really till graduate school that I got the idea to combine the two once it came time to create a comprehensive project for my dissertation. I knew I, I knew it was going to be urban history. That's my area of greatest interest, as well as American cultural history. So that that kind of is what got me thinking in the sports direction. And they've and the two interests, I think, really came together nicely in this project. What do your students think of Loserville? Um, not that many of them have read them at this point, just my teaching schedule. I mean, it, it's, um, I, I teach a lot of graduate seminars is what I've been teaching the last couple of semesters. And, um, they've been on a range of us social history type topics. Um, the book was released in early February and I haven't, haven't gotten it in, in many of their hands yet. I'm looking forward to, uh, getting that chance in the fall. I also did, I wanted to follow up on 
that museum. What does that museum entail in your family there? Uh, well, it's a town called Benson, Vermont, and they've had a for the bicentennial. My my grandma created a museum for the town, basically just gathering a bunch of uh, archives uh, together. She 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 passed away and in, uh, in 2016, but the museum continues to exist and uh, has played a prominent role in the town ever since then. The mm. town of about 800 people in southern Vermont. Those history genes were passed along to you. That's that's Indeed. a lot of fun and exciting. And you um, make it all come out in Louisville, uh, this book. When you think of some of the maybe saviors of Atlanta, a lot of people might not want to say, but Ted Turner and TBS, really, some of his ideas really helped Atlanta get back on track when it comes to, or first time ever getting back on track of getting sports out there, maybe not necessarily right away in the stands, but out to everyone via TBS and television. The following is an exclusive presentation of Turner Sports. He really was a pioneer, wasn't he? Without question, pro sports to a great extent might have left Atlanta if it wasn't for Ted Turner's efforts in the mid-1970s. The station, which evolved into TBS, uh, Ted Turner started broadcasting sports on in 1973. It was a small UHF station called WTCG. They started covering Braves games. They started covering Hawks games. He eventually becomes the owner of both the Braves and the Hawks in a relatively short period of time. In January 76, he buys the Braves on the installment plan. The existing owners, who were basically a group of the sons of wealthy Chicago industrialists, were looking for a new home for the club. There was talk of Seattle. There was talk of Toronto. There was talk of splitting games between the new Superdome in New Orleans and Atlanta. Ted Turner steps up and buys the team for $10 million, $1 million a year for 10 years. It serves as very inexpensive programming for TBS moving forward alongside reruns of Andy of Mayberry and Happy Days and uh, all kinds of other um, uh, rerun type programming. Uh, He also buys the Hawks in 1977 from Tom Cousins who was a major real estate investor in the city, who was starting to uh, see some of, some of his downtown investments go sideways. He gets out from under the Hawks and also the Atlanta Flames hockey team, whom he owned, who he sold to some businessmen in, in, in Calgary, Alberta. But it's Ted Turner who saves two of uh, Atlanta's franchises, uh, suffers through a number of years of losing money on these teams. Um, they're providing programming for his TV station, but they're not drawing well in the stands. Uh, Initially, he has the problem the previous owners did that he relied to a great extent on guys in his organization to play prominent roles. But the more he turned things over to the experts in both sports, the better both franchises did. In particular, the Braves, once they hired John Schuerholz as general manager, they developed one of the best minor league systems in baseball and have really been as successful as any organization in baseball for the past three decades. I'm kind of blown away with it. it, been over the plans. I, I had not seen it since it's been completed. Uh, so I'm just kind of blown away. And I haven't seen it all, all yet. It'll take a while. You know, you got to pinch yourself. You know, this is, can't be real. The New York Yankees and the Atlanta Braves are a story in themselves, but overriding all of this, Major League Baseball's newest venue. Hi, everybody. Pete Van Weren, along with Joe Simpson, welcoming you to Turner Field, the new home of the Atlanta Braves, the first game ever played at Turner Field. And I still can see Ted Turner in the seats with Jane Fonda when they were a couple watching Atlanta Braves games. I mean, on TBS, that, that's forever marked in my memory of, of watching uh, when the camera would go on. 
to Ted Turner in the stands there with Jane. You have a, an excerpt in the uh, book that I'd like you to read. It's page 150 in Loserville that Clayton Truder, our guest here on Sports Jam, talks about Ted Turner. My pleasure. At an Atlanta Chamber breakfast in early 1976, a Chamber member asked new Braves owner Ted Turner what he planned to do about the frequent break-ins and muggings in the stadium parking lot. Turner deflected the question with humor, stating that he would run shuttle buses during games for criminals from the stadium parking lot up to the affluent neighborhoods of the city's north side. Then the criminals could burglarize the rich people's homes in peace while the rich people enjoyed the baseball game in safety. An August 1979 Atlanta Journal report on security at Atlanta Stadium tried to reassure fans that they were safe attending games, despite the stadium's proximity to some of the city's most dangerous neighborhoods amidst a record crime wave in the city. It also shows how he tried to handle, you know, things as as an executive when faced with tough questions from the media. He was indeed someone who could handle himself. Yes, absolutely. I mean, he was as good a booster as these organizations had. I mean, he's always out there presenting himself as the face of the Braves in a way they didn't really have beforehand. The ownership was very distant. They had a guy named Bill Bartholomew, who he actually kept on because Bill Bartholomew was so well thought of in Atlanta. He was one of a group of about a dozen guys who owned a piece of the Braves. There was a group called the LaSalle Corporation that owned the Atlanta Braves uh, had moved them from Milwaukee to uh, Atlanta in 1966, but they were pretty much faceless for most of the fan base. You suddenly have Ted Turner, who's out there participating in uh, special evenings at the ballpark. There was a, a Georgia peanut farmer's night, and he's pushing a peanut down the third base line, bloodying, bloodying his nose. He's having mattress stacking competitions with uh, members of fraternities and sororities. Um, his first ever game as Braves owner, a guy hit a home run. Turner jumps out of the stands and goes and celebrates at home plate and then is promptly told to never do so again. He even served as the Braves manager for a doubleheader early on in his tenure, which the league um, uh, frowned on and encouraged him not to do in the future. But there was no better salesman or, and no better uh, promoter uh, for this franchise than, than Ted Turner or Atlanta sports more generally. You mentioned a lot of people involved in the early goings. Uh, I'm an Alan. Is there anyone in particular that you want to point out to our Sports Jam audience, uh, since you've done so much research on the politicians, the owners, the businessmen involved in all this? I mean, Ivan Allen, the the mayor who helped get this process going, is certainly a, a significant figure in the book and a significant figure in the city's history. Atlanta would not have become major league without really him pushing this, first as chamber uh, president, Atlanta chamber president, and then as mayor. He was also, uh, I would argue, the most courageous politician in the South in the mid-1960s. He went and he testified on behalf of the Civil Rights Act. He's the only Southern politician to go and testify on its behalf amid the massive resistance in the region um, in, in, in 1964. Um, so I, I, th I think his, his courage outside of his efforts to bring in pro sports are, are laudatory as well, and I think he was a fine mayor. I would particularly like to honor a man named Sam Massell, who was his successor as mayor, who died just a couple of weeks ago in his 90s, was a major figure in the city for more than half a century, was a one-term mayor, but he did some very important things, both involved with sports and otherwise. He's the guy who gets MARTA, the mass transit system, which still could be certainly better in Atlanta, but but there was tremendous fighting about it in the suburbs trying to keep it out. Sam Massel is the guy who gets it through politically, pushes for, for that successfully, was very focused on pushing for different um, political changes in the region, which brought this very dis dispersed, spread out place together in different respects. So he was a, a real force for metropolitan convergence. 
also in terms of stadium building, when Tom Cousins wants to get the Omni built, he wants the city to pay for it, essentially. Massel is a real estate lawyer. He understands how these deals come together. He said, no, 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 we will sell bonds for it. Um, we will we will to, we'll sell bonds to get this thing built, but we're not going to pay for the stadium. You're going to pay for the stadium with tickets, with with uh, funds from your parking deck uh, that's nearby with your hotels. So he helps really keep the taxpayers off the uh, uh, off the bill and to a much greater extent than the earlier stadium they built, Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. And hopefully, even though he was just a one term mayor, I, I hope his uh, legacy is well remembered in the city. Some young people that are reading Loserville might not even know that there were the Atlanta Flames. The Thrashers came after the Flames and, you know, after the team had left, but the Atlanta Flames. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, you were kind of surprised how well the Flames actually did because that was before you had the Tampa Bay Lightning winning Stanley Cups and and that the South was, was a, you know, a haven. The Florida Panthers are good this year. There's talk that maybe Florida and Tampa you know, we'll, we'll meet in the conference finals because they're both so good. But that wasn't the case back in the 70s. Not at all. Atlanta was on an island in terms of getting an NHL team. And I could not have been more ignorant going into the project. I thought the Flames were kind of a joke, just the short-term team that had no interest whatsoever. I couldn't have been more wrong. I spoke to several of the players who spoke about what great support they got in town, many diehard fans they developed. The Flames were in Atlanta for eight years. They made the playoffs in six of the eight seasons when that was genuinely a chore to make the playoffs in the NHL. They had above average attendance in five of their eight seasons. The Detroit Red Wing Hockey Club brings you the game between the Atlanta Flames and the Detroit Red Wings. Sid, the Atlanta Flames may just well be the best last place team in the history of the National Hockey League. They're in the tough, tough division. They've got a great record, and yet they still have to do some catching up. One of the reasons that they are as good as they are is a young fellow named Bobby McMillan who has played some kind of hockey for them. The Omni became one of the hottest tickets in town, particularly for upscale consumers. These were not cheap commodities going to a Flames game, but for many people who were going to go spend the evening at a nightclub or a bar at Underground Atlanta, the Flames game was the first stop in these evenings. So the Flames really enjoyed very strong success during uh, very strong on-ice success as well as box office support during their, their time in town. They leave as much as anything because their owner, Tom Cousins, uh, who had built a broader multi-use uh, complex around the Omni Coliseum, uh, got himself enmeshed in the largest bankruptcy in U.S. real estate history, over $100 million in 1978. He was trying to get out from under it. He sells the Hawks to Ted Turner. Um, some oilmen in Alberta offer him $20 million for his hockey team. He had paid $8 million for them just eight years earlier. The price was certainly right, so he got out from under this when he got a chance, and uh, the city ends up being left high and dry in terms of hockey. The Thrashers didn't do quite as well as the Flames, I think in part because there were a lot of hockey teams already in the region that at that point by the time the Thrashers come in, in the late 90s. Um, their, in terms of on-ice performance, wasn't quite as good either. And I think also the Thrashers fell into a mold that a lot of these southern hockey teams have faced that there's 10 or 12,000 just diehards who have season tickets, who care deeply about the team. But unlike traditional hockey markets, there aren't a lot of casual fans there. There aren't people on a Tuesday night who are going to turn the game on in the middle of the second period and stick with this. And in terms of getting broadcasting revenue, you need a lot of those people. And those exist throughout all of the northern hockey markets. Plenty of people who will watch most of the games, at least for part of it. You just didn't have that in, in Atlanta, so you didn't have very good local uh, broadcasting revenue. So the team's at, team ends up uh, heading to Canada, uh, as just as the uh, Calgary Flames did. And the Calgary Flames, uh, 
playing pretty good this year, uh, but uh, they did win a Stanley Cup eventually. And uh, but it's been it's been tough going for the Flames uh, in Canada for a while. Certainly. I mean, they've had great support. I mean, the Saddle Dome is frequently filled. There's currently stadium talk about what to do with that arena. It's been around since 1980 when 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 the Flames arrived. It was actually built uh, in hopes of the 88 Calgary Winter Olympics, and it served as the main hockey and figure skating venue for, for that, among other things. Um, the guy who's the general manager in 1989 when the Flames win the Stanley Cup is the same guy who was GM back in the 70s in Atlanta. His name was Cliff Fletcher. He'd been a uh, protege of the Montreal Canadiens management and ended up bringing a lot of guys who were the Canadian spitbacks down to the flames. That was partially why they were so successful before there was an NHL draft. Like the, the, the Maple Leafs and Canadians would just load up on all the talent in Quebec and Ontario and have plenty of good players without really a home. Uh, Cliff Fletcher found a lot of them a home in Atlanta and later on with the Calgary flames too, who were very consistently successful during his nearly quarter century as the team's general manager. We're speaking with Clayton Truder, the author of Loserville. I have to ask you, you know, the NFL has really been pushing to have a team in Europe, right? Whether it be London or some other. What are your thoughts on that? Can can that work in the National Football League to have a team in London with travel and all that involved? If I was the players union, I would go to the mat to fight that because I think the quality of life of those guys having to travel back and forth all the time to play in that league would be very difficult. And I think in the long run, it would be tough for that team to compete in the NFL with all the travel they had. I just look at the at the smaller example of the Atlanta Falcons who got placed in the NFC West going to the West Coast more than any other team in the league. They were already a weak expansion team throughout much of their early history. But they traveled more than any other team in the NFL, and they were just working within the North American continent. I can't imagine a team that plays in London having to go play games on the West Coast, let alone games on the East Coast. So uh, as a fan, I hope that doesn't happen, largely for the sake of the players, for whom I think it would be very difficult. The Patriots score 31 straight points and a crushing defeat for Atlanta. I'm so proud of you, man. What do you think would have happened to the Falcons had they not allowed Tom Brady, the Patriots, amazing comeback in that Super Bowl, and the Falcons had that big lead? What would have, you know, how would that have impacted the Falcons winning that Super Bowl? Because now a lot of people forget they were that close. They were a great team that year and should have won the Super Bowl. Oh, certainly. Yeah, I mean, they had a 28-3 lead late in the uh, late in the third quarter. I question how much impact it would have. I actually think the Falcons have a pretty solid and consistent fan base now. And that really has to do with an economic shift in Georgia that happens in the 70s and 80s. Once Maynard Jackson gets elected mayor in 1973, the city puts it puts in arguably the most progressive affirmative action program in the country and invents a much larger a black middle class in Atlanta through municipal jobs, having a lot more people who can afford to attend sporting events. You see a tremendous imp- uptick in both the Hawks and Falcons attendance in the 70s into the 80s into the 90s as there's an expansion of Atlanta's black middle class. Also, as Atlanta builds its airport in the 70s and 80s, they, they, they install various quotas in terms of contractors and create dozens of, of black millionaires overnight as a result of this. So, so, so the, the support these teams have received, particularly from African-American fans, since that broad expansion of Atlanta's black middle class, I think in many ways have helped stabilize Atlanta as a sporting market that had been very dependent on the whims of suburban consumers who lived very far from the stadiums. 
Um, so I, I think the Falcons would have roughly the same support now that they that they that they would whether or not they'd won that Super Bowl. I, I mean, obviously there were a lot of um, you know rending of the garments and all that kind of stuff after after the defeat, but uh, I think things are pretty steady in that operation. I think Arthur Blank's a pretty strong owner and has uh, I mean certainly compared to the previous ownership group, the Smith family, who was very well liked by all the players I spoke with. Um, Mike Ken, who was the head of the players union, said he never had his union activity held against him, uh, which considering that, I mean, George is hardly the most union friendly place historically. That's a fairly surprising, surprising uh, anecdote. I think the players broadly liked the the Smith family, but they ran very much a mom and pop operation and were largely unsuccessful during their tenure of owners as owners. When Arthur Blank in 2002 buys the Falcons, he's the owner of Home Depot. Um, they get a much more professional uh, much more willing to spend money type organization in place. And the Falcons, though they've had successes and failures, certainly in this time period, are run in the same way the other franchises in the league are being run now. As I mentioned earlier, timing is everything when it comes to writing a book or publishing a book. The Atlanta Braves are the World Series champions. So how did that championship affect the city? It, it had, a, I think it had a tremendously positive impact because the Braves had been so close so many times. They'd won a World Series in 1995, but they'd really been kind of the runner-up so many times. We're winning the National League East year after year uh, and not getting a championship. Getting it done in somewhat surprising fashion last year, I think, was a really pleasant, um, a ple- pleasant occurrence for people in Atlanta. This team had really, through August 1st, was just winning a game, losing a game, right around 500 the whole time. Suddenly, they're in the World Series and finding a way to win it through really having very steady and consistent pitching. So I, th- I think it was a big surprise, that championship, for a lot of people. You've had the University of Georgia, which has many strong ties to the city of Atlanta, winning a national championship in college football. And I think nationally, a bit of an undersold story has been the popularity of soccer in Atlanta. That The Atlanta United soccer team fills up Mercedes-Benz Stadium, has won an MLS championship, and really has built up the existing popularity of, of soccer in suburban Atlanta that really began in the 1960s. Uh, Atlanta had one of the first teams in the NASL of the 1960s. And while the team only lasted a few years in town, it it helped spring a, a movement towards more amateur uh, soccer, youth soccer in suburban Atlanta. Um, in 1967 they, alone, they went from having like 200 amateur soccer players in Atlanta to 25,000. And ever since then, there were there were large leagues of people playing amateur soccer who finally had a source of uh, uh, something to support uh, with with having an MLS team in town. And I think that's really been a great story of success for Atlanta sports as well. Loserville, the title is in no way a commentary on Atlanta's present. It's a very successful sports city. It's um, it really was aimed and aimed at setting the sense of time and place for the the majority of the book, which is in the 60s and 70s. Absolutely. Behind me, you see the Newark Bears jersey. There's also a Newark Eagles and a Roberto Clemente, who you mentioned in your book when you're talking about Henry Aaron and being compared to Willie Mays and, and Roberto in the outfield. Minor league teams. There was a real boon for a while. Minor league teams everywhere. We've lost a few for different reasons. Uh, the Newark Bears no longer exist in Newark and the stadium is going away. Um the Staten Island Yankees lost their team because of COVID and restructuring changes. Where do you see minor league teams right now? Is, is this a, a time where a minor league team, a new minor league team can succeed? 
I think it's very tough with what baseball's done, which in my mind is cutting off their nose to spite their face to save a little bit of money, a tiny amount of money. I mean, we're talking a few million dollars they're saving by doing this. They gutted several of their minor leagues, cut back on the entire system. The Staten Island Yankees were part of something called the New York Penn League, which had existed since the very early 20th century, no longer exists. My hometown, Vermont Lake Monsters, who drew four or 5,000 people a night. It was probably the most popular sporting event in Vermont, other than Vermont college basketball. Um, they just disappeared overnight. They have a college league team that got pretty good support last summer, but, oh, it, it chokes me up to even think about it, the d- disappearance of minor league baseball, where people who do not live near a major league team, it is your sense of connection to those leagues. And for me, it played a profound role in being a fan of major league baseball. When I was a little kid, the Reds and the Mariners at different times had minor league teams in town. And growing up in, in, in rural Vermont, being able to see a guy wearing a cap that looked like a major league cap. I mean, I know they've gone with all these crazy, you know, you know, names so they can uh, trademark it and stuff and, and sell it. But having teams that were the Vermont Reds, the Vermont Mariners, you felt like you had a sense of connection to what was happening in the big leagues. And I think for people in dozens of communities across the country, they've lost something as a result of this any sense that they have a connection to Major League Baseball, which seems to be hemorrhaging fans every year. I mean, I'm certainly not a fan of a lot of their rule changes to me, which seem like game show gimmicks either. So I'm in many ways a very discontented baseball fan at the moment. Mm. Can't beat Lake Monsters, though, for a, for a nickname, though, right? That... Well, no, it was great. I mean, we had <laughs> Champ in, in Lake Champlain, and, you know, very famous, at least regionally, uh, kind of like our little Loch Ness monster. And he was, he was a great mascot. And the, 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 the mascot still exists for the college baseball team. And uh, it's, yeah, it's uh, uh, just unfortunate what happened with all that. Just a couple more questions here on sports jam for Clayton Truder. The one city in the U S that should be pursuing a professional sports team in your opinion. I recently talked with the uh, Sabre society for American baseball research chapter in Nashville. Boy, They are really pushing for big league baseball. There's all kinds of plans on where to stick a stadium. It seems like Nashville is sort of like Austin was a few years ago, the city with this growing sense of momentum beyond, beyond the, the, the sense of, I guess, mystique that both of them already had to some extent. It seems like Nashville has, has a cultural momentum going on. And I would not be surprised if that's a new market for big league baseball. I think it would be great for Atlanta too, particularly if they stuck them in the national league, it would be a a ready built rivalry between those two cities that really, aren't that far from each other they're also not that far from cincinnati so being in the nl central i I think having having a built-in uh sense of stakes in a team with having rivalries is is significant so to me that seems like the the city that would be the best choice among those available markets although i would say i've always been confused why norfolk virginia beach that has not been a big league market that's a i'm always like anytime i look at a list of the metropolitan areas i'm always shocked at how high it is on the list i frankly never even think about it i mean i think i've been there once but uh and i guess they have a fairly transient population because of the navy and all that kind of stuff but still it seems like a very big potential market that's very underserved talking about being there last question for you is you've done so much so much research and you're a historian so it doesn't have to be a sports venue it can be anywhere, but you only have one night to spend in Atlanta and the city goes dark after that. Where are you going and why? Well, I want to get dinner at the Varsity, the very famous hot dog place near uh, Georgia Tech. I mean, it's been a local fixture for a century. 
I would love to just go to the Georgia Tech campus too, which is a lovely campus with so much sports history in it too. They have a great museum going to the Georgia Tech was a major football power from early in the 20th century. I think I'd I think I'd go to the varsity, get some hot dogs, and then walk around the Georgia Tech campus for a while. Congratulations on this book. And we look forward to new books coming from Clayton Truder and the future. Thanks so much for having me. This has been a genuine pleasure, Doug. Sports Jam is a WBGO Studios production. You can hear all the past shows by going to wbgo.org slash sports jam. Find Sports Jam with Doug Doyle on the NPR list of podcasts or wherever you hear podcasts. You can also see the entire Sports Jam interview with Clayton Truder and his book Loserville by going to the Sports Jam with Doug Doyle or WBGO Facebook pages. Until our next Sports Jam session, I'll see you at the game.